Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have booked shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. What's up, everybody? Thanks for checking out episode three. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, give those first two episodes a listen if you like what you hear. As always, you can find us at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. On Twitter, it's at Podcast Hardcore. There's a blog attached to the website where you'll find special features not included in the interviews. If you have any feedback, feel free to contact us using the form on the website. Today, we're going to have part one of our chat with Jim Callahan. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Jim Callahan has been playing drums in Rochester bands for over 30 years. If you've been a part of the music scene here at all during that time, you probably already know what a good guy Jim is. Jim's band Moment of Truth just put out a new record called No Blind Eyes on WTF Records. The album is streaming everywhere now. You can find more information on their Facebook page or at WTFRecords.eu. What follows is part one of our conversation. How have you been? How have you, how have you and your family been handling the quarantine and how has it affected your work? Oh man. So I work in the live events industry, you know, like I'm a, I'm an audio engineer, which, you know, you and I talked about recently, you actually had a hand in me starting on this career. So let's give a worldwide thanks to, uh, to you for that one, uh, for in, inadvertently starting me down this path for the last 20 years. Um, but I, uh, you know, so I do like conventions and stuff. So the, the, the last thing that anybody's doing is getting, you know, anywhere from 100 to 10,000 people together to talk about anything. So, I mean, we, we shut right down, you know, now the, we've, we've kind of been exploring some web platforms. We've reached out to a bunch of clients. We're going to start hosting like uh, live webinars and stuff like that so that the uh, associations and, uh, and stuff that we work with can still, you know, have their meetings, can still provide their service to their membership and all that. But, you know, it's kind of changed the landscape of my career, but you know, you're going to, you're going to adapt or, or you're going to die. So I'm, I'm on the adapt side of that. Yeah, as far that's as the, true. And, yeah. As, as far as the family stuff, we're not, uh, we're, we're doing really well about kind of giving each other space so that the that's four cool. of us aren't yeah. like, you know, getting on each other's nerves or fighting or, you know, like one of the kids wants to sleep, slink off to their bedroom or something like that. They can just, Boop, okay, I'll see you later, buddy. <laughs> I'll call you for dinner. Yeah. Your kids are a little bit older too, right? Like, I think you have a son who's who's going to be like seventeen or eighteen soon, right? Yeah, my uh, my youngest will be fifteen, uh, beginning of June, and my oldest will be eighteen in December. Right, so that's a little tougher because they know what's going on. Like, my son's only he he literally turned two a week before it started, so he kind of yeah. he misses it. he misses his daycare buddies, but other than that, <clears> he doesn't really know exactly what we're dealing with. So it's kind of it's been fun for him and I. We've gotten a chance just to kind of bond for the last two months, but. You know, I'm kind of ready to go back to work, even though I am making more, more money via unemployment than I was my actual job. Um, so one one quick follow up to that question, I think I think I do have some other questions lined up for your for your engineering gig and stuff. But yeah. how how do you think it's going to affect you? Because is this job like a travel job for you, or is it something you more do locally? Oh, me, I'm on the uh, the the company I work for in Rochester, but we're a national. In fact, international firm. We've we've worked all up and down uh, North America, and, and we've sent a couple of crews to uh, Europe and South America before. Like, I, I'm normally on the road, honestly, 18, 18 weeks a year is a good good guess. 18, 20 weeks a year, maybe. So, like, it's it's been a real like, it, it, it's just been a halt. Like everything just stopped. I was supposed to be gone for three of the last six, seven weeks or whatever it's been. You know, oh, we that's just, crazy. Yeah, we had uh, we had probably uh, you know we, we had a cast of like maybe a hundred and fifty freelancers that we used on a regular basis, and this isn't including all of the local local labor like uh stagehands and you know production managers and all this kind of stuff that that we just had to be like we can't employ you guys anymore you know first wave was like hey you know this stuff is we we need to bring this stuff in-house as much as we can and then the conversation was like hey in-house guys there's no work 
So it's it's kind of weird. Yeah, that no, that sucks. Um, I'm sure we'll get more into talking about that job uh, a little bit later in the interview, but, but I think we'll kind of uh, go back to the beginning of, of your uh, your hardcore history and, and everything else pretty much. Yeah. So um, tell me about your upbringing, I guess. Uh, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure you grew up on the east side of Rochester. And um, with that, how, how, how did you end up finding hardcore through all that, too? Oh, I, so I grew up on the east side of Rochester. I uh, still live on the east side of Rochester, which I, I, I never wanted to be that, like, you know, old guy you hear about in, you know, New York City or whatever that never left his neighborhood. Or I never wanted to be that dude, but um, but I still live here on the east side, so I guess there's something to it. Uh, anyway, so I grew up, um, you know, like my my mom and dad bought the house that my mom still lives in like five years before I was born. I'm an only child. Uh, my parents were high school sweethearts. You know, my dad died in 99, but my mom is still married to him, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a really, really stable house. My dad had one job my whole life, you know, so there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of turbulence or chaos or, or any of the stuff that you kind of hear people uh, being drawn to, you know, e- extreme music or, you know, art scene or whatever. Like I had a really stable kind of, you know, white bread kind of family upbringing, although I did live in the city and went to city school. So I experienced, you know, every, every culture you could, I, I didn't even go to, I didn't go to school in my neighborhood. I went to school on the other side of town. So, you know, my friends were from all over the city and they were, you know, every every race and gender you could imagine, uh, you know, this was in the you know, I graduated in high school at 89. So that gives you a little bit of perspective. Um, so I had uh, my, my old man was a like outlaw biker type. So I was always around music, you know, so, you know, mainly outlaw country, you know, southern rock, whatever, you know, oldies. So like, you know, uh, Beach Boys, Chubby Checker, Elvis Beatles, Stones, like that kind of stuff. And uh, I just gravitated towards, you know, the heavier and heavier music as I as I got older. I found myself being more into, you know, uh, ACDC than I was 38 Special. And then I really lucked out because there were a couple of older uh, boys that lived next to me, a couple of brothers. And uh, they were just old enough that they were getting into they were into like uh sabbath and priest and maiden and you know and uh uh, pre-radio ballad scorpions you know like 70s scorpion like virgin killer and love drive and like you know or 70s early 80s scorpions and 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 all that kind of stuff so they would babysit me sometimes or just let me borrow records or whatever and i just found myself being fascinated with the album covers and all that so i so long story longer i you know i started going to as many concerts as i could and i saw everybody from like warrant and poison and all that kind of stuff but i also at the same time this is probably 85 86 i'm starting to go see motorhead and i'm starting to go see slayer and i'm seeing you know priest and maiden in in arenas and you know all this kind of stuff and then as I get exposed to, you know, through skateboarding and like a lot of us, you know, looking at magazines and the shirts that other bands are wearing and stuff, I, I realized that the the hardcore side of it really spoke to me more. I liked, I liked how, you, you know, you'd be in the audience at a hardcore show and the guy that's moshing to the band right next to you or whatever, he might be in the next band, you know, like it had a more kind of every man feel to it. And the, the politics kind of spoke to me. So for that day in the, in the, in the eighties coming up as a, as a young metalhead, you know, my entryway wasn't so much right into, you know, minor threat youth of today, that kind of stuff. I found my way to, to hardcore, you know, through crossover. It was suicidal tendencies and corrosion of conformity and DRI. And the next thing, you know, it's agnostic front, it's sick of all it's grill biscuits. And then, you know, on and on lifetime available, blah, 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 you know, snap case, et cetera, you know? So, uh, yeah, it just, it just steamrolled. I always wanted it harder and, and faster, you know? yeah it sounds like you had a pretty good progression to hardcore then um one quick follow-up on that it's something i was thinking about earlier that i didn't include in our initial notes to this interview but one piece of really good advice that you gave me i think around like somewhere between 2001 and 2003 when i was booking like all those shows yeah as you told me that that you think uh for me to be careful because hardcore goes in waves yeah and um i think that's something you and i have both kind of seen uh you know from 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 distance and from close up at the shows. so yeah. 
can you describe like what your favorite era of hardcore has been and like how how have you dealt with like the peaks and valleys of the scenes coming and going oh man that's a tough one man um uh oh and also i want to say when we're talking about my you know kind of history from you know like rock and roll on the radio to you know going to basement shows uh that whole time because i know that you're also a fan like I'm growing up and listening to everything in the emerging hip hop scene too. So that can be a conversation for another day, but it was, it wasn't just like aggressive music. Not that hip hop can't be aggressive, but it wasn't just like metal and hardcore. Like it was just music in general. Like I grew with these genres. So uh, as far as hardcore going in waves and my favorite era, uh, you know, I, I really think, you know, um, you know, here's to today. There's no better time. You know, I don't, I don't, it's easy to look back and think that yesterday was better than today, but you know, every minute is, is what you make it. There's still so many great bands out there that are still doing it. You know, like there's, there, there's, there's such a vibrant scene that I don't even know about just because life is taking me in a different direction. But then I end up at a show where I, you know, I, uh, you know, I see, a you know, an article on the internet or somebody's like, Hey, have you heard this band? But you know, I'm, I, I, I'm loving what's going on today too. You know, probably when I was the most active, that would probably be be between like 91 and 2001. My, my oldest son was born in Oh two. So is there Oh three, be a two, whatever. Uh, Oh three, I think maybe, um, any, I should know that. Shouldn't I? Anybody that, uh, (laughs) anybody that, you know, Anybody that has kids, you know, you're, you're a dad, you gotta, you, you, your priorities shift. It's not that you, it's not that you give up on the scene, but you realize you have another life you got to take care of. So your, your priorities change, but um, yeah, the, the era I was most active, I don't know if it's my favorite, but most active was, was then what was the other part of the question? I'm sorry. No, I think we, I think we pretty much covered okay. it. It was more just, Oh, well, no, actually, how do you, and I think you kind of answered it because like, like me, you're not really able to go to as many shows. So I don't think it really affects either one of us as much, but like, how would you, you know, react to seeing like you, you meet somebody who you become a really good friend with. And then it's like, whether they're here for college or they just lose interest in hardcore, like, like I honestly kind of did for a little while. You don't really see those people anymore. Like, how do you, how do you react to that? Like, does it, does it bother you to like, not to become close friends with somebody then not to really see them anymore type thing? Or like, uh, yeah, you know, you know that, what I mean? that, that bothers me. And, and a personal example of that, and it's just the, 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 end of the story that I'll is just you know life takes you in different directions but you know I used to be so close with uh, a former singer in one of my bands him and I were practically inseparable and then like life took us in different directions and we just don't see each other anymore and you know I I I really miss the dude I still consider him a close friend but you know it it just life has taken us in, in in different directions so uh I think that when you're young you take those relationships a lot more seriously and you take the smallest slight you know a lot heavier obviously you know the old hardcore cliche is like you're not around you stabbed me in the back i thought we were so close you know like we could write an entire youth crew album on those three subjects you know um which are ultimately the same subject but um as you get older and you look back you know just i've just tried to be like hey like you and i like hey did something happen that i might not remember did i misspeak and not not and you know why haven't i seen josh in a while like is this oh it's because life has changed oh okay then then that's acceptable you know what i mean and if there was a if there was a grievance if it was like oh this person like really did me wrong do, do you hold on to that or do you just let it go you know like it, 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 if you're going to hold on to it, a, a cliche that I heard is like holding a grudge is like letting someone live rent free in your head, you know? And, and the other side of that is that I heard that forgiveness is more about you healing than it is about saying what the other person's actions were is okay. You know, so you just kind of, just got to kind of brush it off and realize, you know, if somebody was your close friend, you don't see him anymore and you can't pinpoint a reason that, Life changed and things change, you know, just that's the, that's the nature of the world. Things change. Right. No, I, I get that completely. And I feel like for me, and I, I'm sure you probably notice this too, as you get older, like you go through that, that era in your life where, you know, you start to become more of an adult and you lose interest in some of the things that you were into when you were younger. But then as you get older, whether it's because we have kids now or just, you know, the nostalgia feeling that you look back and you, and you kind of miss those days. And now, like, even before this whole quarantine started, I found myself like, 
getting way more way more interested back into hardcore and stuff like i went to a bunch of shows last summer and you know and i think it's i i I think part of it is because i want to be able to pass this on to my son and have him see like how much fun we Mm -hmm. had when we were younger you know but i think another part of it is just realizing that like there were a couple years that i missed out on some fun times with this stuff so i've been kind of trying to catch up on lost time so to speak um yeah you're, you're, so i guess you're we'll, gonna, we'll keep going you're not going to catch up on that lost time but you are going to be able to have a lot of fun today right exactly yeah no i, I think i think maybe making up for lost time is, is a better yeah, way to, yeah, yeah. to put it because yeah you're right i'm never i'm never gonna i'm never gonna see the experiences that i missed in those those years where i was kind of out there abusing the substances a little too hard yeah. or whatever so I, I've um also so tri- i guess I've we'll also, keep on the same note i've also tried to um it, it's real easy to sink into to nostalgia. So, you know, like Avail, who's one of my favorite bands, just did a series of reunions. The nearest one was, you know, either New York or, or Philly. But it didn't work out in my life schedule to go see that. So instead, I channeled that same kind of energy that I had, that same feeling that I was, you know, reaching for. And I went to a local show instead. You know, like... Yeah, no, I I, I I try as often as I can. Not that it's not good to go see the bands you love, kind of that are doing it again. I'd be my band is doing it again. I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't if I thought otherwise. But you know, um, you know, you it's 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 still there. It's still there waiting for you. You know, it's going to be a little different than you remember yeah. it, but it's still going to be there. Right. Yeah, I think that's what uh, the interview I just posted today with with Mike Jeffords that I did last yeah. weekend. Him and I were kind of talking about that. That. <clears throat> there's this real nostalgia and legacy vibe and hardcore now, but at the same time, like you have people like you and Mike who've been, who've been around this whole time yeah. who have been here. And you also have like younger bands that you can support too. Like you don't, and you know, nothing against, like I loved, I think one of the last times you and I actually saw each other was, was when judge played in Buffalo and that was a really good oh, time, yeah, yeah. you know, but I mean, you know, there's also like newer bands. I mean, I could, I could have an entire podcast just talking about the bands that I've gotten into in the last year, exactly. you know? So I think it's, I think, I think it's good just to mix it up and not, you know, and not just be a legacy kid or not just be a new kid. Like, like know your roots, obviously. Yeah. But like, there's like we're like we're saying, there's a lot of good stuff going on right now too. Yeah, like, and and, and I don't um, and 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 I love the fact that a lot of the older bands. I love a lot of the older bands that haven't stopped. You know, like Agnostic Front is still putting out killer records. Sigvall is still putting out killer record. You know, just there's still a lot of bands that are still there and still doing it and still crushing it. You know, like every night, I mean, it's hard for me to think that like terror are kind of elder statement statesmen of the scene right now, but they are. And those guys are still out there killing it. You know, it's great. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what him and I were talking about too. It's crazy to think of bands like terror and every time I die, who obviously sonically are a little bit different, but they're, they came from the hardcore yeah, came, scene. Yeah. It's crazy. Those bands, those bands have been around for, you know, terror's been around for almost 20 years. And every time I die, it's been around for like 22 or 23 years. Yeah, when like I first met, uh, like we, we, when I first met Andy there from every time I die, he was, I think he was playing drums in like a power violence band or something, you know, it was. Yeah. I think that would have been soiled uh, in your basement probably yeah, too. Yeah. Um, you know, but speaking of drums, actually, uh, when did you first start playing the drums and were you interested in any other instruments before that? Uh, my parents had bought me a guitar when I was like a little kid and a bunch of like records on like how to play the guitar. Cause that's what you did, you know, in 83 or whatever it was. But, uh, I had, I had no interest in that. I had as much interest in that as I have in the guitar that currently sits in my bedroom. I, I can play at least three chords now, but, uh, I've been, you know, I've had six weeks to learn to play the guitar and I've learned three chords. Um, I got interested in drums like uh, I think the first time I wanted to play drums in a band I had seen the Judas Priest video for You've Got Another Thing Coming and it was just big and loud and I didn't really know that music and you know like and it's a great song they're actually my favorite band Uh, but I just remember watching Dave Holland and he's such a simple you know, just keeps the beat kind of drummer. But I was just like, man, like he's, this guy's really pushing this along. You know, it's just, it's just right there, you know, between the, you know, the bass thump and the, and the kick drum, just like, I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this has got me bopping my head. This is, this is holding my interest. So that was probably, I don't know, 82 or 83. And then I got a drum set in 87 
for Christmas because I kind of kept bugging my parents. And then as luck would have it, I had a cousin who had played drums but was selling his drum set. So that was an easy purchase for my mom to buy a drum set from her brother. And uh, and literally the very next day, I started jamming with the bass player that I still play with today, Patrick Loricano. He had gotten, he had traded a guitar that he had for a bass. And it was the day after Christmas, 1987, that we started playing, trying to write original music together. Wow, that's crazy. You guys have been playing together. I knew you guys had been a moment of truth initially together, but I didn't realize you guys had been jamming for over 30 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like, um, it's to the point where we, we really don't even... We, we were just joking about this when we recorded the new album because uh, uh, Doug White at Watchmen there, the engineer, was just like... He was like, do you guys even listen to each other? Like, not, not in a condescending way, picking on the rhythm section, but Patrick and I were both like, no, we just, we just know what we're going to do. There's not, you know, it was like finishing each other's sentences. There yeah. was, I didn't have to like have the bass cranked up in my headphones or anything like that. I was like, no, we're good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good to have that vibe though where you guys can kind of feed off each other and not have to have to, to, to play it like a million times. You already kind of know what the other one's yeah. going to play, you know? Um, so I guess you kind of reference this with uh, the drummer from Judas Priest, but were you influenced by any other drummers coming up or was that, was that like a pretty big influence? For uh, Dave Holland was a, was a pretty big influence for me, but like a lot of the drummers, I'm always the odd guy out when it, when it comes to talking about, uh, my musical influences. Cause so many people like, and I'll just give some older guy references, but so many people are going to be like, Oh, Neil Peart, or I love, you know, like, you know, even you know, D Dave Whitty or Braun Daler or guys that I'm buddies with, you know, like, oh, this, you know, um, you know, whoever, Pete Sandoval, like whoever, these drummers are so good, these drummers are so good. Like, it, it, yeah, they're great. But like my drumming influences were like um, Stan Lynch from Tom Petty's band or Billy Joel's longtime drummer, Liberty DeVito, you know, like is the, the flashiest I ever got was like uh, Max Weinberg's work with the, the E Street band, you know, like I, I wish Phil Collins never stopped paying drums and started singing. Like the worst thing that ever happened to Genesis was Phil Collins stopped playing drums, you know? Um, no offense to Chester Thompson, but you know, Phil's just better. Um, I like those guys. I like guys that know how to, how to serve the song, you know, especially being the drummer in a hardcore band. I, I don't, I don't into the kind of, you know, kind of chuggy metallic hardcore that, that I play. It's, I, I need to, I need to move the song along. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to show off how many lessons I had or how much time I spent with a, with a, you know, with a practice pad, you know, when, when the breakdown happens, you know, and you need boom, boom, bap, so you can mosh, that's what I'm going to give you. You know, that's, I like the, you know, that kind of, that kind of uh, like visceral feeling behind the whole thing so much more than the, the technical prowess. Now, if that, you know, if that makes me, you know, on par with the Lars Ulrich of hardcore, I don't really care. Yeah, no, I think, you know, from a couple of our failed attempts at doing bands together, that you've always been one of my favorite bands, uh, especially with your stage presence. Your, I'm sorry, not favorite bands, Thank favorite you. drummers, um, especially with your stage presence. Um, you know, I always kind of wish we, I, I was a little bit better at guitar back then, so we could have made one of those bands. Oh, and happen. I wish that I wasn't um, just although like it was... a pompous ass back then, too, because I was I was. I was kind of a dick and not taking it seriously. So I'll take this moment to apologize for, uh, for not really taking it seriously when you wanted to jam. No, that's fine. I, I still have a very fond memory of us playing um, kind of an, kind of an improv set at uh, Ellison park. And, and you just decided you were done playing the show. And so you just like literally got up and left and got on your bike and rode to work afterwards. I, I do. I don't I if you remember that at all. But, that, yeah. yeah, that was a good time. Um, so I guess let's jump into your first couple of bands then. Um, I had never even heard of the bands uh, Rot Gut and Genital Asphyxiation. Um, so what do those bands sound like, and how do they how did that help you develop as a drummer more? I guess? Um, Rot Gut was our was our first band, so you can imagine what it sounded like. Um, it was everyone in the band's first band. But one of the things that we strove to do from the very beginning was write original music. We didn't have a lot of covers or anything like that that we did. Um, we started writing our own songs right off the bat and um, for good or bad, it was fun. Uh, that band had two iterations. The first singer and guitar player went off to, to do different things. And I still actually run into the guitar player cause he plays in, uh, 
Nick and the Nice Guys. So if anybody is from not the roster area that's listening, Nick and the Nice Guys is like the band that plays at, um, you know, your your corporate Christmas party or whatever. They're that kind of, you know, they do they do wedding receptions and and that kind of stuff. But the guy's a great dude and he's still playing. So 100% credit to him. But then we got another singer and another guitar player. We learned a bunch of covers. We had about an hour, 20 minute long set. It was, uh, you know, we we were coming from all over for, from our influences, you know, like uh, there was definitely some, you know, punk and hardcore creeping in there. But, you know, I don't know. We didn't we didn't know what we were doing. We were trying to write fun, heavy music. We described ourselves as comedy core. I wrote all the lyrics and they were all cheesy, but some of them were semi serious. But most of the time, like it, it was it was stupid. But we had we had a lot of fun doing it. And we played some pretty cool shows. We got to play with uh, um, uh, Crystal Sin and Explicit Death, who were the big like metal bands uh, here back in the eighties. We uh, like late eighties. Those were the two. If you were into you know heavy music and you wanted to hear locals, those those were the two guys that were doing it. We got to play with uh, Solution, who uh, another great old local hardcore band. Um, their bass player, Lon Hackett, currently plays in Sulaco, a phenomenal tech metal band. Um, you probably know John Schoen. Do you know John, the, the singer? Yeah, I was just going to say you mentioning Solution. People have suggested to, when I've been bringing up mentioning doing this podcast that it'd be great to John, get him yeah, on the yeah. podcast John, John knows point, more so, about like, you know. uh, like obscure music and like rare books and stuff like that. Like he's a... I, every time I talk to John, I learn something. It's great. And then uh, Drew Vestrate, the guy that was the drummer in that band, um, went on to be in Big Hair, who was beloved locally. And uh, and he actually yeah. uh, currently plays what, when their schedules work out. He's done a couple of shows with uh, Nuclear Assault. So if that tells you what kind of drummer, he's he's that good. So. But anyway, so we got to play with yep. them and, and this band, Not- Life Sentence, out of Chicago. That was great. We, we played a couple. We played like a, a live radio show that used to be on WBER locally. It was a lot of fun. But uh, but that that band went its own way for whatever reason it did, and you know that was that. And uh, quickly, gen- genital asphyxiation is really quick to talk about. We were, you know, we just wanted to do. We wanted to do kind of um, an SOD kind of Crab Society North kind of jokey metal band. And that was me and this dude, uh, Dan Reed, who was in uh, Rot Gut. And um, I'll say his Facebook name. This guy, Mike Mikhail Velkoff, uh, played guitar. And we literally would write a song, record it on a booting box, and then move on. So we had like, and we played a couple shows, but we had like... 20 25 songs that we wrote in like four practices and then mike just stopped returning our phone calls and that that was that so wow yeah that sounds like my my experience with my uh my high school bands that you're uh, yeah. somewhat familiar with um now were you playing with pat yet by that time or was moment of truth the first time you guys oh, no, no, started, actually started playing, playing a band in, together rock got together we we met the we met this this incredible way we, we'd actually gone to middle school together, but we didn't really know each other. I didn't really know anybody in middle school. Uh, and then we were in high school together, and we recognized each other, but we, we didn't know each other. And then 11th grade year, uh, 87, 88 school year, we're sitting in we, – we, we're in the same chemistry class. And the way the teacher had us seated was alphabetical from the front of the room to the back of the room. So I was sitting in the very back last seat of the first row being C and he was sitting in the very back of the second row being L. And we noticed that we were both drawing like the suicidal tendencies logo or the DRI guy or writing, you know, like iron maiden or trying to draw the motorhead, you know, thing like on our notebooks. Like it was like, Oh, Hey, this guy's in the same music I am. And we started talking and you know, we've been, we've been best friends ever since. So cool. Yeah. That's, that's, I was going to say, yeah, no, so him and I, he was in both versions of rock gut. Uh, he didn't record with, uh, with GA, but he played a show with us because we didn't actually have a bass player and he was like, Oh yeah, I'll do this. So. 
all right, we have an hour getting into moment of truth, which I think we can agree is probably one of the most well-known bands that you've been in, if not the most well-known, um, which was my first exposure to local hardcore. And I'm guessing other people around that time that was their first exposure to hardcore as well. Um, how, how did the band end up forming after those other two bands kind of uh, faded out? Well, pa- uh, Patrick and I, we met, uh, we met this guy, Chris Vandewater at, um, he, I think we met him at a DRI show at Backstreet's. He, literally came up to us him and his brother eric and i mentioned eric because his name will pop up in a second in this story uh him and his brother eric came up to uh patrick and rotgut's old singer dan uh at this dri show and was like oh hey aren't you the guys in in rotgut and we were like yeah we are he had he had seen us play one of our handful of shows and he was like, oh, what are you guys, you know, are you guys playing again? Or what are you guys doing? You know, just typical kind of show, you know, you don't really know each other kind of show small talk. We we're like, oh, we're looking for, uh, like, we're, we're actually looking for a new guitar player. And he was like, oh, I play guitar. And our uh, our buddy Dan was like, oh, give us your phone number then. So uh, he said it to, this is back when everything was landline, of course. He says it to Dan. Dan had to memorize it because we didn't have anything to write it down on. We uh, we end up calling them like a week later and getting together to jam that that band with the four of us didn't work out, but uh, Pat and Chris and I really enjoyed jamming together. Uh, we had written some stuff, like I said, the the project we tried went nowhere, um, but we really enjoyed uh, jamming together. So we continued to jam together, write songs, like record stuff on a boombox, all this kind of stuff, and then. We had some lyrics. Um, Chris had learned a couple of old uh, Rotgut songs just because we had to have something to play, not because we intended on playing them. But you know, you know how it is. Like, it's hard for a new band. You got to figure something out when you're first starting to jam. You know, the the trick I learned is if you're going to start to jam with people, like pick a cover. Then everybody goes and learns the cover, and then at least you have one song to play when you get together. You know. Uh, so anyway, we'd been jamming and Chris was, we we were thinking about new singers and stuff. We tried out a couple friends and, you know, there was no internet and we didn't, you know, Rochester doesn't really have a, didn't really have a newspaper like Village Voice or, you know, NME or, you know, uh, Musical Express or anything like that. So we just had to, we tried out a couple friends and then Chris was like, Hey, I'm going to bring my buddy Jason down. And we had met Jason before too. We're like, Oh yeah, I know that kid. Well, Chris had given Jay, a basement recording and the lyrics that we had at the time. <clears throat> and when, uh, when Jason showed up, he had done his homework and it didn't feel like we were trying out a singer. It felt like our singer was just at band practice and he put everything he had into it and he just knocked it out like immediately. And Patrick and Chris and I were like, well, that settles that, doesn't it? As it turns out, that very same day. Now, to give you a little bit of roster history, when like Explicit Death and and Crystal Sin and uh, Solution, Hunger Artist, Bent, like a lot of the old roster bands, all kind of broke up or changed or something. Right around like between like eighty nine and ninety one, it just felt like I don't want to say the scene stopped, but there was a radical shift. You know, there there there, there was. Uh, Backstreets was closing. Um, the Penny Arcade was only doing like national acts and cover bands. There was, you know, Idols had closed. There, you know, I don't. I think Jazzberries was still just a rest. No, there wasn't any place to play really. So, the same day we get a singer, a good buddy of ours named Jeremy Slate calls up, and he had done. He was doing a radio show on. Uh, I think it was on RUR. I think he was doing Sonic Insanity or uh, Sudden Death Overtime or one of those old old metal and hardcore radio shows. He calls us up and he was like, I talked to the guy that owns Club X, which was like a new wave kind of dance club. I talked to the guy that owns Club X. He has agreed to let us do a local like metal show do you guys want to play? Like, do you have a singer yet? You guys want to play? We were like, yes, we do. So that show ended up being at club X. There hadn't really been a, a local show in, it feels like it was six months. That show was uh, this band divination who was uh, from Webster, New York. Um, Us moment of truth. And then uh, Matricor, which was Eric Burke. If 
anybody that knows music in Rochester or around the nation knows Eric Burke. He's been in Brutal Truth and Nuclear Assault and Lethargy, which is the band that Braun and Bill from Mastodon came from and blah, blah, blah. You can look in, you can Wikipedia him on your own. But um, so Matricor was his band and we'd been buddies with all those guys before this. So we get this show booked. We're second on the bill, but it's our first show. That's a good feeling. Um, because the scene had been so stale, people were just so eager. So our very first show, we played to like 300 people and they went freaking nuts. And it was such a good feeling and such a good drive that we were like, yeah, this is it. Now, an odd thing happened. And that is because like I was saying, all the Rochester kind of punk and hardcore bands had kind of morphed into other things or it wasn't anything for a little while. It felt like we were the only hardcore band. If there were any other bands out there, I don't mean any disrespect. I know that foundation was coming up right around the same time, but they were there. The, the old foundation, not the new foundation bands seem to learn to Google. Um, but, uh, they, they were pretty much out of RIT, which is, you know, a college in one of the southern suburbs here. So they were playing out there a lot. They had their kind of own scene going on around like 92-ish. We actually ended up becoming really good friends with those guys. But in order to play shows, we had to get on metal shows because X was starting to bring bands through. And they brought like, you know, like Agnostic Front and Sheer Terror and Biohazard and Sick of All and Entombed and Morbid Angel and, you know, uh, you know, Dead Horse and Unleashed and like a lot, a lot of great stuff came through that club. But like Moment of Truth play, ended up playing with all the all the metal bands. We were friends with the guys in, you know, Grotesque Infection out of Buffalo or, you know, like what whatever. We just ended up being friends with all the, and playing all the metal shows. So we didn't really, we were starting to kind of play some of the hardcore shows that were here and started to bring some hardcore bands here. But we were really always the hardcore band on the metal shows for like the first year or so <clears throat> of our existence. And then it, uh, hold on, I need, a, I need a drink here. No, that's cool. I'll actually bring something up yeah. uh, to, to go back to in a second, too. It's interesting you would mention that that you guys were the hardcore band on the metal shows. Because when I first got into this around like 95, 96, it seemed like it was kind of the same thing. There was more metal shows here and you would find like one or two hardcore yeah. bands playing on the metal shows and then obviously of course you had lethargy playing yeah. water street like every month it seemed like um and that was kind of my exposure to heavy music so it's, it's interesting that that would happen again a few years later where you know where the, the scenes were kind of incestuous i guess you could say where it was like hardcore <clears throat> and metal yeah. were kind of bred together you know uh but what now oh, okay, with your, with your timeline um, there i guess so uh and actually with what moment of truth is doing now we're trying to do the uh trying to do the same thing. The last show that we just played, because we're very, very part-time at this point, the last show we just played uh, at Skylark Lounge, great little uh, great little place to have uh, uh, shows, was us and Anthropic from Buffalo. And if you're into bands like uh, Repulsion and Terrorizer and, and Early Napalm Death and that kind of stuff, definitely check out Anthropic from Buffalo. And then this local punk band called Taduya. And uh, Josh, do you remember the Al Beeman band? Yeah, so to, to, to do yeah, oh, of course, yeah. current yeah. band. So it's the same kind of irreverent, like okay. it's you know, it's pop punk fun, you know what I mean? They're not they're not being they're not being like Blink one eighty two level of dumb, but you know, they're definitely having a good time out there. They're not taking themselves too seriously. But I, I say that to say that like we're still all about mixing the genres up. Like I I love it. So back to the timeline. So uh we're starting to play more out of town shows, we're starting to play more and more hardcore shows. Um, we end up playing a great show in uh, Lockport, New York with uh, a band I don't remember much called uh, Jonestown Field Trip. And then the headliner of the show was uh, IND, who was like kind of an industrial hardcore band, if that's a subgenre. Um, IND was great. That was Doug White, uh, owner and engineer at Watchman Studios. Uh, Joe Valella, who's a longtime seen guy he still plays in a ton of bands none of which i can think of now because i'm a dick sorry joe um and uh and the almighty slugfest anybody that you know like we brought up terror before so slugfest anybody that knows terror slugfest was like 
Scott Vogel's first band or whatever, for all intents and purposes. And, and that's kind of where he cut his teeth to become like one of the best front men in all of hardcore. And for the record, the best frontman in all of hardcore is Tony Irba, but that's a story for another day. And around the same time, you know, more bands are starting to form in Rochester. Our original singer quits. He's joined the service. Uh, Jay is our current singer. Jay is still in the service. Um, and we got our new singer, a guy named Greg Walsh. Greg owns a great, like, MMA kind of CrossFit gym, Wolf Brigade here in Rochester. So if you're listening and that's the kind of working out that you want to do, go see Greg over at Wolf Brigade, he will uh, definitely kick your ass in all the best ways. Um, so Greg started singing for the band, and Greg and I were a great, like, one-two punch. And we had the passion to start, like, seeking out kind of alternative venues. Uh, X had closed as X. Somebody else had opened it up as Bosco's. They were still doing shows there. But we started looking at at parks and basements and there was this great loft apartment that you probably, I think the first show you saw us at was at this loft apartment off St. Paul Boulevard, right? So Greg and I started seeking out kind of alternative venues. More and more hardcore bands started playing. We, we realized that if we wanted to play hardcore shows and we wanted hardcore shows to happen in Rochester, we had to do it, you know, because there was, there was nobody else handling, you know, the clubs didn't want it. Not that we didn't play at clubs, but the, you know, the clubs weren't doing it. There wasn't a booking. It. There wasn't somebody like you that was not that you weren't also in bands the whole time, but there wasn't somebody like you that was just bringing hardcore bands here just for the love of hardcore. You know, like if we wanted to play a show, we had to book a show, you know? So we just started doing that. And, you know, we ended up, you know, touring and uh, putting out a record that I'm proud of the music, but I hate the production on. And, uh, uh, yeah, just having a lot of fun and totally diving headfirst into, you know, to the Northeastern hardcore scene. And we've, you know, we were, you know, the, the scene was thriving uh, around here between, I want to say like 91 and 98, really. I'll give it a good, you know, that we were traveling regularly between Buffalo, Niagara Falls, Erie, Cleveland, Syracuse, you know, sometimes even all the way out to, you know, Albany or Boston, you know going to all the Greg and I were going to all the festivals that we could, you know, that was happening like in uh, New Bedford, there was a great couple. Uh, I forget the one that was, wasn't, it was in like Cincinnati or so. Like there was, it was all time, you know, we were, we were driving down to Richmond to see bands play and, you know, you're, you're committed. If you're driving to Richmond, Virginia to see a band play on a Thursday, you know? And, uh, and yeah, we were just, just really having a good time, but you know, times, times change our longtime guitar player, Chris, uh, went away to college. Uh, he's currently uh, holds a master's in geology. So, you know, he did, he did okay by himself. He's, he's doing all right. So we had some, some other players kind of coming and going in the band at the time. It was just tougher and tougher to hold it together. You know, we were kind of, and just, you know, some personality fractures and that kind of stuff. It's kind of being tough of us, tough for us to, uh, to kind of keep that going. You know, I know there was some disappointment by some other people in the band, like, watching some of our peers be a little more successful and, you know, for the record, if you want to make money, don't start a hardcore band, you know, it's not really the way to do it, but um, yeah, watching some of our peers become more and more successful. You know, we, we grew up in the same scene as, you know, you know, some of the, the real heavyweights, you know, well, one thing I kind of want to circle back to, and if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, you can correct me on this, but yeah. my first, my first hardcore show was the summer <laughs> of 95 at Freakazoid. Um, okay. Ben and I had gone like an all local show a couple months before that, but I wouldn't really call it a hardcore show. Um, so my sister took me to see you guys cause she worked with, with, uh, Andy Gilmore at the time and he was your bass player then. Oh yeah. Now, yeah. If, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Eric Burke filling in guitar for you at that show? Do you remember that at all? Or, um, he, you know, he played, he, Eric played with us all along through the entirety of playing and, you know, is we even have him on standby if we need somebody, you know, tomorrow or something to play. Uh, so he may have been, Eric has always been an unofficial member of the band. And him and I were just talking a couple days ago and he was like, Oh, remember this show we played? And I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, I don't remember. So, you know, so if, if Eric played, Eric very, very well may have played with us at that show, but I, I don't remember it. Was it a daytime or a nighttime show? 
Yeah, I think there was a in the summer of '95. Rob Filardo booked a lot of matinees at Freakazoid. Um, the one the one we had went to, uh, Ben and I had gone to, was like Shop by Squares, and there was a there was a Trash Can Records compilation they they did a release show for, and it was all the bands in the compilation. Yeah. Um, all the the bands I remember playing with you guys at the matinee show was um, Backlash, Gathering Ground, you guys. There was some death metal band. I think maybe they were called Contortion or something like that. Oh, and was um, that a Freakazoid? Yeah, it was outside of Freakazoid in the courtyard or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, Eric played that show with us. Okay. Yeah, that's now Vertex for anybody who's listening who's like wondering what what Freakazoid is or was. And I remember it was funny too because I was like 14 years old. So I don't don't know anything about hardcore at the time, obviously. And my sister and and Andy and I were talking afterwards, and Greg comes up and he like introduces himself and he's like, So what'd you think of us? And I was like, Well, you guys are better than Contortion, (laughs) you know? And he's like, like, Well, that's that's a real compliment, you know? Like knowing that obviously I'm not going to like death metal or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, what's it like playing with Eric though? Like, I, I guess you're saying like you you obviously jammed with him, you know, throughout the years and stuff. Like, is it is it kind of like Pat, where it's easy to to just kind of groove with him, or is it is it is it intimidating yeah, at all because he's a good it, guitar it, player? It, here's the thing about anybody that knows Eric personally, jamming with him is the same as having a pint with him. There's no ego; it's all just fun. Like he it. You know, while I'm sure that our music was very, very simple for him to play, uh, and uh, while we're talking about the guy, he actually co-wrote one of the songs on our new record. The song "Soulless Life" is uh, that was well, we all contribute, but the the, the main parts of that song were written by uh, uh, Eric. Came up with the main riff, and I wrote like the kind of mashy thing that happens in there. So um, Eric just loves music so much that even though he is this you know, total shredder, like I said about his resume, you know, he played with, you know, Brutal Truth, Nuclear Assault, you know, jammed with the guys that are now in Mastodon. He toured with Napalm Death, you know, there was there was a rumor back in the day that they were trying to get him into Cannibal Corpse. There was a rumor that they wanted him to join Gore Guts and stuff like, he's just, and the Solaco stuff is just, um, you there, Josh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just don't want to drop again. I just got nervous we dropped again. No. Um, yeah, you know, no. the stuff he writes is and can play is just mind-blowing. But there is zero ego. There's zero pretense. You know, he never was, he never, even when he was, you know, even at practice with us, he never, you know, like, never had that like, oh, we're doing this simple crap again. You know, it was always just hmm. like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm jamming with my buds. Let's do this. You know, and we just, we had a blast. Yeah. You know, and that's and just funny how you he mentioned- is all the time. And he treats, he treats his, you know, the whole time I've known him, he treats his good friends and people that he's just meeting for the first time exactly the same. I mean, everybody is just like, he's there for a good time. If you're being respectful and having a good time, he's being respectful and having a good time. You know, like I, I got to, to do a little uh, tour and do some tour managing for uh, Nuke and uh, down in Mexico and, and Mexican metalheads are the some of the craziest people that I've ever met in my life. And I mean that in the absolute best kind of possible way. Everybody like, shook hands, took pictures, signed autographs, you know, talked to guys, just stood there and smiled while guys like, well, like drunk guys rambled on in like lightning quick Spanish that we were lucky if we picked up every 20th word and we better hope it was like agua cerveza, you know, other than that. And he was just, yeah, man, like just, he's just one of the, I'm going to kiss his ass right here. He's just one of the best guys I know.
um, towards the end of Moment of Truth, uh, you formed Anal Muscle Rips, which led to a Shotokan. And obviously, you guys had kind of a notorious reputation around this area. <laughs> I don't know um, anything about any of that. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. What can you tell me about this era? And was I the only person who didn't realize that you guys were improvising the music un- until you told me you were? Uh, no, actually, you weren't the only person that, that didn't know that we were improvising. Uh, uh, we, we had recorded, us, uh, I actually think it was uh, Dan Hag had videotaped us at a show we played uh, at the Penny Arcade, and we released that as a, as a live demo. And uh, the next time we started, once we actually started writing songs, I had a couple people come up to me and they're like, oh man, you guys don't play any of the old stuff. And I had to be like, Hmm. yeah you know we were just making that up as we went along you know but but i we were we were serious about improving. we would practice a couple times a week now these would be drunken stone messes but you don't get to be a good improver by just showing up and making it up you have to learn how to read each other's cues you have to learn how to listen to each other you know like this is what made some of the jazz greats so good is they learn how to listen you know and uh you know it's really easy if you're just in a band that writes and records songs and then you learn your parts. And so long as your part is right, you hope the rest of the band is right. You know, so much music is formulaic that way, but when you're improving, especially the, the way we did it, you know, kind of a grind power violence thing. Um, you really have to know how to, how to look at each other, how to, how to know what's going to go on, how to know where the head nod is going to come in, you know, but uh, literally what we would do when we were at improv, as uh, as Pat Murphy would kind of just do his thing and kind of, uh, you know, egg the crowd on or just make something up off the top of his head, the other band members would kind of turn around and look at me and I would ramble something off like, we're going to play fast, we're going to play really fast, we're going to play really, really slow. Okay, you guys ready? And then that was that was it. Or sometimes, you know what I mean? Like and any one of us could have played that, could have taken that role. There were times when the guys would turn around and just like, slow as you can go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you can even hear you. I don't know if it's on that recording or maybe I just remember hearing you at a show. There was one time where I remember hearing like somebody say like blast, yeah. you know, mosh, stomp or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, and then another. Kind of cues we gave each other. Yeah, another another interesting uh, trivia piece with that uh, Penny Arcade live tape. Um my my band at the time which was a little my second band was a little bit better than the first it still wasn't anything to write home about but um and i i, I shouldn't even be putting myself out there like this because now people are gonna look on youtube for it afterwards no, it. but um we were called we were called the scabortions mm-hmm. and i asked you guys if it was cool for us to use your side as side b of the tape and we would put our demo on as side a or, or something along yeah. those lines and recently recently andy from the band captain three leg has been uploading like all the tapes that he must have traded and i must have traded one with him at some point or ben did Cause he put that on YouTube recently and I was listening to it and I was like, man, like our stuff sounds pretty terrible. Like, like Ben had written a couple of good songs, but yeah. I still couldn't really do anything vocally, but it was, it was just funny to go back and listen to the Penny Arcade recording again. Cause Pat his on stage banter was just, was just, you know, hilarious back then. And it was just funny to go back and listen to it again. Oh, yeah. And even some of those songs, even some of those songs you guys played that night, like I knew now that it was improvised, but it still sounds like technically like tight and stuff yeah. you know what i mean so i think you know just... back, back then we were doing two covers also we were covering uh sideshow by ringworm and then uh sometimes we would play an old moment of truth song uh no more pain and that was only because we had run out of material and um we were either being told to keep playing or uh i think the first time we played uh, uh the moment of truth song uh aaron Berto, one of our guitar players turned to me and got a big smile on his face and just started playing the riff because Aaron had been in one of the one of the uh, final versions of Moment of Truth so he knew all those tunes and he just started playing the riff and we just started playing the song and it was great <clears throat> right I'm not going to mention I'm not going to mention the shows for obvious reasons but I remember two shows that you guys <laughs> played where you did where you did cover that yeah. song and and you got a pretty good response for it um, people were definitely singing along yeah. and I remember I remember like even Jody from <clears throat> from interface and like as the world burns yeah. and, and whatever other bands he's played guitar for um even he was he was like screaming along and it was just the you could tell you guys had made a mark in rochester because it had been a few years since and i guess it hadn't been that long it probably been a year since moment of truth had played their last show but people were still excited about it yeah and, that was that was you know fun. we would all along we we yeah. had that, i talked so, about that song we actually took so we 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 ended up writing a bunch of songs 
and then recording those and putting out a second demo. And that stuff is a little more like tougher, kind of moshy, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, just more kind of mosh, tough guy, hardcore, kind of Troy core, kind of hate creed influence kind of stuff. And uh, um, so when we recorded it, Pat Murphy did the vocals on the chorus. He had a different, you know, a different kind of uh, uh, timing that he did in the chorus part. So we actually liked it so much that when Moment of Truth started playing again, I played that version of the song for the band. And I was like, I really want the chorus part like to go like this. Like this, you know, this, this is how Pat Murphy did it. I think it sounds really good. And, and, and everybody was like, yeah, that does sound really good. So we, we made that change. And also to swing back to Eric Burke real quick, also on that song, uh, on the new recording of it for the, and the recording for the new album, uh, No Blind Eyes, uh, available now on WTF Records out of, out of uh, the Netherlands. Um, go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button, uh, and it'll take you right to that link. Uh, on the version of the song that we recorded uh, for this last time, Eric was like, hey, why don't we do this little like pickup part at the end? And we'll like, you know, instead of going four times out or whatever, we'll go eight times out. We'll double the time on the last four. And then we'll, you know, just do like a choke or something like that to end it. So we jammed it that way. And we're like, yep, that's the way we play it now. So the version of the song that, that you, you can hear now has Pat Murphy's vocal line and Eric Burke's guitar additions to it. So, you know, moment of truth, equal opportunity. I mean, it's good to hear a progression, too. And then I guess one last funny thing about the Shotokan era, and if Pat actually listens to this, he'll think that me and Ben are total total losers for still remembering this kind of stuff and joking around about it like 25 years later. But you were saying that that second demo was more like tough guy type stuff. Um, when you guys were getting ready to go in to record it, I remember Ben and Pat talking about it. And, and, he, and Pat told Ben, he was like, oh, yeah, it's going to sound more like Agnostic Front. And Ben was like, oh, you mean like United Blood? <laughs> and I guess Pat turns... I guess Pat turns to him and he's like, no, nah, man, that stuff's too punk rock. <laughs> um, That's funny. But obviously, like you said, it, the recording did end up sounding more like the Troy Car stuff from that era, which at the time, for me, that Troy Car stuff was a little too, I don't know if I just wasn't into the tough guy stuff or the metal stuff, yeah. but I just didn't really like it as much. But now I was telling Mike Jeffers last week that like bands like Stigmata and I know Biohazard's not from that, that area, but they sound yeah, similar yeah. to some of those bands. 
like those are two bands that I love now. And and I, if you would have put them on for me twenty years ago, I'd have been like, yeah. nah, it's, it's just and, not really. And, and anybody that knows, you know, so that just goes knows that I'm like, I'm about as tough as a wet noodle, you know. So for some of these tough guy bands, those guys are tough and they're tough twenty four seven, and you better watch out because they're tough, you know. But I'm just like. For me, it was just fun hardcore music to play. You know, it was something to something so that you know people could people could dance to it and you know and and, and have a good time. I was never uh, you know got, people would uh, you know it, when the band was jamming and stuff. You know that they they tell me stuff like oh like you know play this like Marauder beat or so you know like whatever. And I'm just like yeah, I really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't, I was heavily don't... listening to like uh, like. Uh, I don't know, like Lifetime and Avail and Texas is the Reason and that kind of stuff. When when I was in a band, it's all like, dun, 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 dun. yeah, like yeah. No, I don't listen to yeah. that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, but don't sell your short. Don't sell yourself short on being tough though, because let's not forget you did knock one of my teeth out. Oh, of the I show, did. So. I did. It was in your basement, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Uh, it was somebody else's okay. basement at the time. But it was funny because. Again, another band that I wasn't huge into back then, but there was a couple songs there that I liked. And I think you and I even both agreed that we weren't huge fans of the band at the time, but um, a lot of bands would cover uh, Killing Time back then. Oh, yeah, then. was it and, Bright and Side and, or one of those songs? Yeah, uh, Backtrack. But yeah, Aiden, Aiden and, and Jim's first band, Something Sacred, they were playing that in the basement, and it's a t- it's a small area. I'm not, I'm obviously not holding a grudge against you. About no, 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 it, you I know? felt so bad. Um, the moment we didn't even know what happened, and I elbowed you in the face or something, right? Yeah. Exactly. We were both starting a mosh because that song's got to kill our yeah. mosh part, and we both started a mosh, and you just happened to like fling your elbow just the right way. And I've gotten you know broken noses. Like my, my girlfriend loves it. My nose is like crooked yeah. to this day. <laughs> like that's from hardcore, you know. But like the tooth, I just remember being mad about it because I like like I'm like man, I have to go see a dentist and this and that. But the funny part about it is, well, yeah, I, I had a family friend who was a dentist, so I didn't really have to yeah. pay that much for it. But the funniest part about it is that. And obviously, Rick to Life has become a notorious figure within the hardcore scene now with all the crazy stuff he's said and done since then. But at the time, you know, he was still kind of just this, this weird dude with the distros yeah. and bands and stuff. And Common, Common Correct was actually playing that show. And I just remember walking up to Rick right afterwards and be like, yo, man, my tooth just got knocked out, you know? And he's looking at me like, let me see, man, because he's obviously lost yeah. a ton of teeth. And then every time I saw Aiden for like the next two months, he would make me open up his mouth and show me a fake <laughs> tooth because he thought it was like, funny that it was like during his band that it happened you know that wraps up part one of my conversation with jim callahan on today's episode you heard two tracks from moment of truth first up was the song soulless life after that you heard no more pain both of these songs are on their new record no blind eyes part two of our conversation will be up at the end of may